Not sure where Ryan went, um, but I appreciate he rules the world in truth and grace because that's some of what we are going to be talking about this morning. Uh, as most all of you know, in this Christmas season, this Advent season, the four Sundays before Christmas, we have been focusing our attention upon one verse of Scripture, and that is John 1.14, because this verse tells the story of Christmas, when God became a man and dwelt among us. John says it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In fact, let's all say that together. It's on the overhead. Let's say it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This verse describes his dwelling among us as being in the flesh. Describes dwelling among us as being in glory. And though Jesus was in the flesh, he had a, a glory that far outshined the flesh because he was God incarnate. Is the, the deal there? The, these two words perfectly describe the, the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. The, he was a man, he took on flesh and blood like us, and he was God, that he maintained his glory that he would give to no other. As Isaiah 43 says, that um, I have my glory, I'll give it to no other. There, there are the two other verses here in John 1.14 14 that describe the incarnation. Uh, one is grace and one is truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Randy Alcorn spoke about these last two words in his book entitled The Grace and Truth Paradox. He wrote this, Jesus is full of of two things, grace and truth, not full of patience, wisdom, beauty, compassion, and creativity. In this list, there are no commas and only one conjunction, grace and truth. Scripture distills Christ's attributes into a two-point checklist of Christ-likeness. The baby born in a Bethlehem barn was creator of the universe. He pitched his tent on the humble camping ground of our little planet. God's glory no longer dwelt in a temple of wood and stone, but in Christ. And people had merely to look at Jesus to see what God was like. You say, what was God like? Well, he was a man with flesh and blood. Yet he maintained his glory as of the only son of God. He was full of grace. He was full of truth. Two weeks ago, we looked at flesh. And what we did with this verse is we took this verse and then we went through the whole gospel of John, just looking to see what it is that John teaches about what it means that he took on flesh. And we saw that he, he walked and talked with us, meaning that he communicated to, uh, with us. He could touch us. Um, he lived as any other man would. He felt fatigue and pain and hunger. He felt emotion, re rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who, who weep, right? Rejoicing at the wedding of Cana and weeping with Martha and Mary at the death of their brother Lazarus. He also felt the stings of society with conflict with his family, conflict with the crowds, conflict with religious leaders. 
In other words, he was just like us. We saw all those things in John. Last week, we looked at the word glory. And again, we just surveyed the gospel of John to see what it teaches us about the glory of Jesus. And his glory was demonstrated in the signs that he did, the miracles that he performed when he walked among us. And John contains seven or eight of these signs. And we looked at each of those, so how he turned the water into wine. And how he um, healed the official's son who was at the point of death. And how he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda when he had been an invalid for 38 years. How he fed the 5,000 and he walked on water. He gave sight to the blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And he himself, finally, he raised from the dead. And as he had prophesied, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. He was raised up again. It's a sign. In other words, when you think about the glory of Jesus, he was so unlike us. Flesh, he's totally like us. His glory, totally unlike us. Able to work signs and wonders and work miraculous things. And these signs are the key to the book of John because John wrote these things down that seeing these signs, understanding these signs and the glory of Jesus, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. Well, this morning we turn our attention to grace. We're considering what it means that Jesus was full of grace. Next week, we'll consider truth. And appropriately, my message this morning is entitled, He Dwelt Among Us in Grace. I bet you kids, if you're smart enough, you can figure out what my message will be entitled next week. Right? He Dwelt Among Us in Truth is what it'll be next week. Right? And this morning and next week... I want to approach it like we've done every time. We've taken this verse, taken this word, and just said, well, what does John tell us about that? If, if John starts with that, then, then what, what is it that he, he does? And so, in, in studying for my message this week, one of the first things I did, I did a word search. And so I looked up grace in the Gospel of John. And I, I figured that I was going to do is just take grace and just figure out the different times in which grace appears for the Gospel of John that will lead us on that journey like we've done with the, the signs. And, and um, it's interesting that grace is used only four times in the Gospel of John. We've already seen where the first occurrence is, John 1.14. You can open your Bibles to John if you haven't done so already. And, and I want to show you where the, the other for the other three instances of grace appears in the Gospel of John. Look at down at chapter 1 and verse 16. John writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So there's first times in verse 14, the second and third times are in verse 16, and the next time where grace appears... Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that's it. Grace doesn't appear anywhere else in the gospel of John after verse 17. So you think about my message today. (coughs) We're going to go through John looking for grace. That's where it stops. But think about this, though. Does that mean that there was no grace in the Gospel of John? Absolutely not. In fact, I would argue just the opposite. I would argue that grace is throughout the Gospel of John and all over the Gospel of John because Jesus is all over the Gospel of John and Jesus is full of grace. That's what verse 16 says. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
In other words, where Jesus is, there is grace. And where Jesus is, there is grace upon grace. And so this morning, as we survey the the Gospel of John looking for, for grace, all you need to do this morning is preach Jesus to you, and you receive grace, because He is grace, even if the word grace is not specifically mentioned. And I just say this by way of parentheses to you Bible students, who all of us should be, don't rely too heavily on word studies because it will fail you here, where the logic of what it is, this Gospel of John is all about grace. In fact, I, I looked one, one commentary up, I, I Google searched for grace in the Gospel of John, and there was a man who wrote a, a commentary that, said, that was entitled, Grace in the Gospel of John. Like, that's what he saw as the main theme of the Gospel of John, is grace. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at it. Nevertheless, I'm trying to pull some points from our text from verse... Uh, 17 particularly, and, and we'll see some things from the, the word grace and what it means. And we'll just, we'll just go through John and, and kind of meander a little bit this morning. But all the goal is that we would see grace. And my goal for you all this morning is that you would enjoy His grace. Sounds good? Let's go to my first point here. Grace is not the law. Grace is not the law. That comes in verse 17. Verse 17 we read, For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Law through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus. Now, it would be wrong for us to say that that's a a summary of the gospel. The Old Testament's law and the New Testament is grace because there was plenty of grace in the Old Testament. It It was flooded there. Grace chose Abraham to be the father of Israel, God's people. Grace sustained Joseph in Egypt. Grace raised up Moses to be the leader of Israel. Grace conquered Jericho. Grace caused the sun to stand still in the valley of Ajalon. Grace was faithful to Israel despite the rebellion in the days of Judges. Grace raised up David to be the king of Israel. And grace sustained the, the dynasty of David in Judah for hundreds of years. Grace was giving prophets to Israel and to Judah to preach about repentance and forgiveness that's found in the Lord. Grace prophesied of the new covenant, Jeremiah 33. There's plenty of grace in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, there was also a law that God gave to Moses. So it wasn't just all grace. It was the law that was given through Moses, and the law dominated the scene. In fact, when Israel messed up, they were judged according to the law. They felt the pains of the law because that's what law brings. It brings pain. It brings judgment, retribution, punishment. And law is not our friend. It's clear from the outset of the giving of the law. The law was given in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 19, we see what took place before the law was given. Just listen to what was said there. Exodus 19, beginning verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people. And consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire and the smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. That's how the law came. Really sets the stage for what the law was like. Thundering, roaring. Those who touch the mountain will be killed. Then think of that, the, con- the, the contrast, the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace came in the flesh, born as a baby in a manger, quiet. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's like a a flood of kindness from the throne of God. And, and, you know, we've heard this story so much. We think about Jesus so much that God could have come in law to us. He, He could have descended upon the earth and come law to us. And in fact, it looks a little bit like Revelation when he will with his second advent. But he didn't in Christmas time. He came with grace upon grace. And you can see this contrast, this different, illustrated perfectly in the story of the woman caught in adultery. It's recorded for us in John chapter 8. You can turn over there if you want. And um, if not, just listen as I, I read the difference. Listen to the difference of, of how the Pharisees approached this woman and how Jesus approached this woman. The Pharisees were coming with the thunder from the law and Jesus comes with grace. Verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground, As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when he heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, we consider this passage a little bit more in depth when I preached recently from Proverbs 6 and talking about adultery. But here, I just just say, say this. Look at what the law does. And look at what Jesus does. Because grace is not the law. In this story, we see that the law condemns. It condemns the sinner in the harshest of ways. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Jesus, in contrast, was quiet, just writing on the ground. Because grace forgives. Grace forgives with tenderness and mercy. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, go and sin no more. 
And that's really the contrast that we see. Grace is not the law. The law condemns and grace forgives. You just want to think about this from Romans chapter 3, right? Let's go out of the Gospel of John just a little bit. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this, And we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's the purpose of the law. It brings accountability to God. It brings judgment upon all who disobey. It brings knowledge of sin. But grace brings what the law never could do. It brings righteousness before God. It, it, it brings forgiveness to all who believe. It, it brings redemption from sin. And you can see that as Paul continues in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And there you see that we are, we are justified not by the law, apart from the law. That's why it's important that the law was given through Moses, right? But grace and truth comes through Jesus. Forgiveness comes through Jesus. That's my first point. Grace is not the law. My second point is simply this, is that grace gives this is what grace does. Grace gives. Uh, I get that from the definition of the word grace. Anyone you know that anyone know what the Greek for grace is? Does anyone know? What is it? Charis. Or charis. However you say it. We we get the word charisma from that. Or the charismatics come from that word. Charis means grace. That's the root meaning we named our daughter. Carissa. We named her Grace. In fact, we named her middle name Grace. So she is Grace upon Grace. By the way, Hannah's name in Hebrew means Grace. Chen means Grace. Her middle name is Grace. So she is Grace upon Grace as well. And Stephanie means Steve. (laughs) And... Her middle name is Grace, and so that means Steve is Grace. Is what that, <laughs> um, that is Grace. Um, it's a common Greek word. It means kindness, means favor, means goodwill. It often has a sense of, of giving, right? granting forgiveness or, or freely giving. It's a, it's, it's a word that, that comes out, that, that, it, that is shed abroad, that people receive this grace. In fact, the form of this word is used in um, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The charisma there is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the, the gift, the, the freeness of the gift is the idea there. In John 1.14, we read that Jesus was full of grace and truth. You could say that he was full of giving freely, extending broadly. And indeed, that's what Jesus did. He gave freely of his time to his disciples. Jesus gave freely of his healing power to those who were sick. He gave freely of his bread to thousands. He gave freely of his life. For us, grace is giving. Grace gives 
It's the idea that it's, a, it's appropriate that Jesus gave because his life was a gift. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he helped me now. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now those words aren't the same in terms of, of giving there. But the same idea there is, is, is a gift, is a giving. The same, the same uh, sphere of meaning is there. Jesus was a gift from the Father to us. And there are several times in the Gospel of John that, that Jesus puts forth this idea about how he is a, he's a gift to us. And one of the best places I, I see this is John chapter 10. So turn over to John chapter 10. This is the chapter in which God, uh, Jesus displays himself as a good shepherd who lays his, down his life for the sheep. That is, he, he gives himself for the sheep, to the sheep. This is grace. Grace just gives Look at verse 11 is where we're going to begin here. John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And, and this, this, this isn't the same word as grace. This isn't charisma. But this is the idea of laying down your life. Giving your life for the sheep. And that's really what, what grace is. Jesus giving himself for us. Now, in the greater context of John, of course, this means that Jesus died for us. He gave his life up as any good shepherd would do for a sheep. Do you remember when David visited his brothers on the battlefield in the Valley of Elah when Goliath was taunting them? And he was trying to persuade Saul to let him go and fight. And Saul's like, you're just a little boy. You can't go fight. Listen to his words as he describes what a shepherd does. Your servant, this is David speaking, 1 Samuel 17, 34 and following. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. You, you think about what David did. David had his precious sheep. And came a, um, a lion or a bear. And Jesus and David would take out his sling and, and get it and try to. But, but, but if it got away, right? You picture this bear, right? Dragging this lamb away. David says, I, I would go and I'd grab it by the beard and I would kill that lion or that bear. At great risk to himself. That, that's what a good shepherd does. See, when danger comes upon his flock, the good shepherd doesn't flee. He puts himself at risk for the sheep. Every good shepherd would do that. And Jesus said he's a good shepherd, unlike the hired hand, which Jesus mentions in verse 12. Look there. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. See, the hired hand is interested in preserving his flesh. He doesn't want to mess with a lion or a bear or a wolf. But the good shepherd who owns the sheep, who has the sheep, will lay down his life for the sheep. As Jesus said in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. And the fact that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep is sheer grace. 
especially when you understand who the sheep are. His sheep aren't lovely ones. His sheep aren't the most obedient ones or the most deserved ones. His sheep, his sheep are simply his flock. Verse 16 talks about his flock. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And I think what Jesus is talking about here, it's not just the flock of Israel who are my sheep, but it is the, the flock of the world. The Gentiles are going to be pulled into that. And so there'll be one flock and one shepherd. That is the church universal. All have bowed the knee to Jesus as he shepherds all of us. And the fact that Jesus gave himself for Gentiles is more grace. I mean, one would think about the Messiah coming to save Israel, and that would be grace, but, but it would be more. Like if, if he did that, it would be sufficient. Dainu, if you know what that word means. But he, he, he laid down his life for us all. And he did it willingly. This is really important for grace too. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And God gave Jesus a gift and Jesus willingly gave himself as a gift for us as he laid down his life. And fundamentally, that, that, that's good news that he came and gave his, his life freely to us, that he, he wasn't compelled to do so. He wasn't forced to do so. He wasn't coerced to do so. And it's important because this, if Jesus were compelled to give his life, forced to give his life, that's no longer grace. It, it, it wouldn't be grace because grace comes freely and willingly. And ultimately, Jesus gives us eternal life. As John 10, verse 27 and 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When Jesus speaks forth, his sheep hear his voice, and they follow after him. And those that don't follow after him are not his sheep. In fact, verse 26 says this, You do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. Talking to the Pharisees who are against him. You're not my sheep, therefore you don't believe me, you don't hear me. But when I speak, my sheep hear me and I gather them in and no one will snatch them out of my hand because I will beat that bear and I will beat that lion, that roaring lion who seeks to devour and destroy, 1 Peter 5.8. I will destroy that one. And none of us deserve this protection from God. He gave it because grace gives. Grace is not the law. Grace gives. Thirdly, grace shows mercy. Now this is what we normally think when we think of grace. We, we think of mercy. <clears throat> we think about those who are in need, unable to meet their need, financially, spiritually, some sort of problem in their life. They, they just, they, they need help. And then grace comes and meets them right in their need. And grace gives. When Paul was in need, this thorn in the flesh, and he said, God, remove this thorn from me. He says, he says, I'm not going to, but my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, what God gives is going to be helpful to you who are really at the mercy of God. 
and grace shows mercy. And really, we see that throughout the Gospel of John, especially in the signs and people that he encountered even. Right? Jesus was merciful to the bride and bridegroom in, in making wine for them so their party could last, so they would not be embarrassed at their poor planning for the wedding reception. Maybe too many people crashed their party, I'm not exactly sure, but he let the party go on, he helped them. In John chapter 3, Jesus was merciful to Nicodemus and they shared the truth with him. Gracious way. In, in John 4, Jesus was merciful to the official who came and begged for the life of his dying son. Basically, he was just pleading for mercy. Lord, Jesus, just come to my house and my son will live. Uh, just come to my house. Just come. And Jesus healed him from afar. In chapter 5, Jesus was merciful to the paralytic who was an invalid for 38 years. He didn't have anyone to pick him up to take him into the pool is what he said. And Jesus said, well, I'll, I'll heal you right here. Chapter 9, Jesus was merciful to the blind man. Think about how merciful he was. This man didn't even beg for mercy. He didn't even ask. Jesus approached him, spit, made that dirt, put it on his eyes, and healed. he didn't even see Jesus. Or he didn't even know who he, what happened. He just saw. That is grace. In chapter 11, we see Jesus being merciful to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus by raising Lazarus from the dead to reunite, reunite the family once again. In chapters 13 through 17, Jesus was merciful to his disciples. He spent time explaining to them what was going to take place, prepping them about how he's going to go and he's going to die and and where he's going after that and how he is the way, the truth, and the life. And you come to the Father through him. But two places in John's gospel stand out when we think about mercy. The first is John chapter 4. You you can turn back there. We've spent some time in in recent days in in John chapter 4 as we looked about that, the surprising conversions. Um, of, of John, uh, surprising conversions in the Bible. We looked at um, different people who were surprisingly converted. So the woman was at the well. Uh, we looked at it in the first sermon, talking about flesh, and Jesus was tired. But, but think about it again now through this picture of mercy. We find Jesus traveling from Jerusalem to Judea, and it says, verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus was weary from his journey. He sits down to rest beside the well. And then verse 7, we read this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And every social norm was against this woman and Jesus, right, between them. First of all, she's a woman. Second, she was a Samaritan. In the days of Jesus, men didn't deal with women socially, publicly like this very much. Nor did Jews deal with Samaritans at all. And on top of that, I believe that Jesus discerned that, that she was a, a bit on the outs. Because uh, women normally gathered water at night or in the morning when it was cool. And they you normally gathered as a social thing. When, when all the women would be together to do that. But she's coming out high noon. That's why verse 6, the significance of this is that it was about the sixth hour. High noon isn't time you go get the water. But she comes and gets the water alone, probably because she's a social outcast because of what she did. And, and Jesus, later in the narrative, sees, we see that she knew that she was living in sin, had left a trail of broken relationships, having been married five times and now living with another man. But Jesus didn't despise her or reject her or shy away from her. In fact, he's the one that initiated the conversation with her. Verse 7 Give me a drink. 
And she was surprised, like, whoa, this man's talking to me. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, we won't go through all the conversation, but if you read it, you see how, how mercifully God, Jesus dealt with her with kindness and with respect. In fact, she was the first one who received the revelation that he indeed was the Messiah. There's mercy towards her, grace towards her, especially as we encounter, uh, we think about how this encounter went contrary to all social norms. It's not surprising that Jesus did this, of course, because he was full of grace. A second counter that puts his mercy on display comes at the very end of the Gospel of John in, in John 21. It's where Peter, it's where Jesus restores Peter after his failures. And you remember his failures of Peter? He denied Jesus three times. It, 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 it didn't come to Jesus as a surprise. In, in John 13, 37... Jesus says this, I will lay down my life for you. And then all the disciples were saying, well, I'll, I'll lay down my life. I'll lay down my life for you. And, and Jesus, no, no, I, you won't. In fact, he says in John 13, 38 to Peter, he says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you that the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Peter was warned. Peter said, no, I'm going to, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus says, no, in fact, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. It's like, okay, he's got enough gumption there. He knows the temptation that's coming. He says, I, I, yeah, all the willpower, the flesh was willing, the spirit was, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak, rather. And it came to pass, John records that for us in chapter 18. Jesus had just been betrayed by Judas, he'd been arrested, and now we find, find him standing before the, the high priest in what's known as the kangaroo court, all rigged. Verse 15 of chapter 18, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went outside and spoke to the servant girl who kept watching the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his men's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And the servants, the officials, made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing outside warming themselves. Peter was standing with them, standing and warming himself. He, he said, I'm not. When a little girl comes up and says that to him. Right? I could name some of you little girls here among us. Right? You stand up. No, I'm not, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. It's like Peter was scared of a, a little girl. And then later on we read in verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by this charcoal fire that they had made because it was cold. And so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then verse 26, One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once... How do you think Peter felt? I will lay down my life for you. No, you won't. You're going to deny me three times for the cockroach. Yeah, no way. No way. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. 
I'm sure he felt terrible. The other gospel writers describe how Jesus went out and wept bitterly. Weeping bitterly, long, loud sobs of sorrow. <laughs> like just, just sobbing in deep despair that he had betrayed his Lord as Jesus did. And now we see mercy, which is the grace of Jesus. And this is the Jesus of Christmas who's coming in John chapter 21. We see this. And I read that about Peter so that you sense how big the sin was. And, and how, how awful it was and how, how terrible he felt. And here was Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, um, appearing to the disciples, making breakfast for them. You know, Jesus made, makes breakfast, right? Breakfast. And there he was, he had the fish and he was eating it with them. He was sharing it with his disciples, talking to them. He took the bread, he gave it to them with the fish. And then verse 15. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. If you love me, then feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love me. He said to them, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, there are some details here we, we could look at. Um, but without a doubt, the main point here is that Jesus is restoring Peter to ministry. Though his sin was great, the mercy of Jesus is more. Jesus said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. These are all metaphors for ministry. The very sheep that Jesus died for of the very sheep that Jesus was to care for. This conversation really demand, demonstrates the mercy of Jesus. No scolding. No yelling. I don't believe Jesus ever told Peter, I told you so. Simply restoration to ministry. It's because grace shows mercy. Finally, and we'll go through this quickly. It just grace loves. Just I was thinking about Jesus, full of grace and truth. What 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 is he full of? Right, he's he's full of love, and we see that best in John chapter thirteen. You can turn over there. We read in John chapter thirteen, verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's one of the greatest statements of the love of Jesus. He loved them to the end. Telos is the Greek word. You don't say he loved them perfectly. He loved them completely. See, the love of Jesus is a perfect love. It's a love that surpasses all love. It's a, really a consequence of grace because grace will love. And what John continues is really an expression of that love. 
And, and the expression of love really shows the extent of love, but it shows the extent of grace because, because grace comes to undeserving people. And, and that, that's really what, what grace is. And, and John is going to describe here how Jesus, in humility, washed his disciples' feet. And that's love, but that's grace, doing what, what others wouldn't do. Giving to them what, what they need, but they don't really want to do it themselves. But, but also what makes it even worse is that then John describes whose feet he washed. Not just the eleven, but also of Judas as well. And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew full well that this one would betray him. And this is love and this is grace in action. Verse 2. During supper, <clears throat> when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then the pour, he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, wash not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Here it is. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. Now that's love. To do the unseemly things. To do the things nobody likes doing. You think about the chores around your house that nobody likes doing, like cleaning the toilet. Or like changing the diaper. But Jesus did so willingly. And, and then he interpreted what he did. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet. And put on his outer garment. And resumed in his place. He said to them. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. And again, this comes out about whose feet he washed. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And, and when... When Randy Alcorn speaks about Jesus and his characteristics of his life are, are into grace and truth. This expression of love definitely falls into the, the category of grace. And Jesus was only able to do this because he was full of grace. To wash the feet of his betrayer. 
Well, there's grace. It's kind of my attempt to kind of look through the Gospel of John. We could have said much other things. We think about the, the life of Jesus, but these are the things that, that kind of came out. Grace is not the law. It's different. And grace gives. It's, it's outward. And, and grace shows mercy to those in need. And grace loves to the nth degree as Jesus did. Well, I hope you enjoy that as we think and reflect upon Jesus and all that he is. He's the one, the word that became flesh this Christmas season that we worship and adore. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your great grace, um, particularly as it's shown in Jesus. God, how great that that grace is. And and yet we could have gone broader and, and further considering your own grace to us and in choosing us you chose your disciples even as you chose the the 12 God that secures us that which is in your hand the devil will never snatch capture away that's grace God that you keep us God so in that we do rejoice in in all ways I, I pray God this Christmas season that these words might become precious to us we think about them and meditate upon them week after week as we think about flesh and glory and grace this week and truth next week. God, may this verse just come alive for us. Help us, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.